Uh, we've been in a series called Monsters Inside Me on Anxiety and Depression, and we're going to be out of that this morning. We will be back to that for the next three weeks in, uh, uh, in February, so I sure hope you can be here for those. But I want to talk to you today about a body. Now, you may not feel this way, but you have a wonderful body. You, you really do. Now, the mirror may not always say what you want it to say, but you really do. Your brain is incredible. Your brain's incredible. We have a picture of the brain there. It doesn't look like, incre- it doesn't look incredible. Your brain weighs about three pounds. Now, we actually weighed Josh's this week, and it came in at one and a half pounds. So, Janelle said that explained a lot. But your brain is not very big. But in that brain, there is 100,000 miles of blood vessels. And you could wrap those around the globe four times. Is that not incredible? Inside of your brain. Your heart is not very big. Again, some of yours may be smaller than others. We have a picture of a heart there. But your heart can beat 100,000 times a day. And it can carry blood to every cell in your body within one minute. That is incredible. But as incredible as your human body is today, we're going to talk about a different type of body. We're going to talk about, we're going to talk about the body of Jesus Christ. Now, no doubt Jesus probably had a wonderful physical body, but we're going to talk about his spiritual body. We're going to talk about uh, what his spiritual body is. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. And you may, as we get into this, you may say, well, does this really apply to me? Is this pertinent to my life? I want to tell you, it's extremely pertinent to your life, and and it has great, great ramifications for your life. Let's begin with this. As a church, we are the body of Christ. We are the body of God. This is our Vision Sunday. We do this once a year. And on your way out, at all the exits, there's going to be these little pamphlets. Please pick one of these up. It kind of gives you a, a picture of where our church has been in the last year and about where we're trying to go over the next uh, six or seven years. It's an important thing. And once a year, we kind of gather and we talk about the church. But we're talking about the church today, not in some abstract, boring, theological way, but we're going to talk about what it really means for you and me. And again, it begins with this. The church is the the body of Jesus Christ. In, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, it says, and his inc- incomparable great power for, for us who believe, the power is like the working of his mighty strength. This is an uh, innate power in God. Listen to what it says, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Okay, just to begin with that, first of all, think about the power of God, what he's saying. The power of God is, is unlimited. The power of God, he has the ability to raise dead people back to life. No one else ever has had that power. That's the power of God. And he's talking about Jesus here, and it says he seated Jesus at his right hand. He seated Jesus at the right hand of the Father. You see, when Jesus Jesus died, he literally walked out of that tomb. It wasn't a, a, a figurative way or a spiritual way. It was a bodily way. He walked out of that tomb, and the Bible says then he ascended back to heaven. And folks, today Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. In the ancient world, the right hand was the position of authority and power and influence. Jesus Christ, and this is going to play in in a moment, our Jesus Christ sit 
sits at the most powerful place in the universe. In verse 21, it says, talking about Jesus, his rule is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. A lot of Jewish people in Jesus' day thought the angels ran things. Philosophers thought maybe everything was just fate. Here's what the Bible's saying here. That Jesus Christ today sits at the right hand of the Father. And there's no president. There's no dictator. There is no king. There is no king or president or dictator who has ever been or who ever will be who's over Jesus Christ. There is no demon. There is no power. There is no angel. There is no devil that is over Jesus Christ. He rules over everything. Isn't that great? That is, that is good news, friends, I promise you. In verse 22, And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Now listen, when something's under your feet for a significant time, you rule it. Amen? You, when something's, when, when, when you, when you got something you're stepping on or you're holding down or it's cowering at your feet or it's under your feet, that is a picture of dominance. This also is a picture of a military uh, concept here when it says that, that God placed all things under his feet, that Jesus Christ, he, he is head over everything. And you notice it says he's head over everything for the church. Isn't that interesting? This biblical word church here was a Greek word. The New Testament was Greek, written in Greek originally. It, it's ekklesia. You've probably heard this word before. Some churches even call some of their services the ekklesia. What was the ekklesia? In, in, in Paul and Jesus' time, in a Greek society, a, if the government wanted to gather a group of people together, they would call an ecclesia. They would get a, a representative to go out, and he would go to the city square, and he would invite people to come and gather, and that gathered group was an ecclesia. In the Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament, the ecclesia was often referred to as Israel. In the New Testament, it is referred to the church. We are the called-out ones of God. And in verse 23, it kind of sums it up. The church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything. Folks, now, it says Jesus Christ is the head, and we are his body. We as the church. Now, in, in, in the New Testament, when you see the word church, there's, there's two concepts. One is the idea of all Christians of every time, of every place. That's called the universal church. You'll hear that phrase used sometimes. But out of 115 times that the word church is used in the New Testament, 90 to 100 specifically refer to it as the local church. Not some mystical thing you can't get your hands around, but, but as the local church. And here's what it's saying here, folks. It's saying that Jesus Christ is the ruler over everything. Nothing is over Jesus Jesus is the ruler and will be for everything. You say, well, right now, why is the world so chaotic? I want to tell you, someday the, the trumpet's going to sound, Jesus is going to come back, and you're going to see everything subject to him completely. That's going to happen in the future. But isn't this cool that we are called the body of Christ? He is our head. The person who is the head over us is the God of the universe. Isn't that cool? People say, oh, it's just church. I can miss church. I don't need to serve in church. I can worship Jesus in a boat or I can do this or that. Folks, it's different when you call this place the body of God, isn't it? It is way different. We're the body of Jesus Christ. 
We're the body of God here on this earth. The ruler of the universe is our head, and we are his body. Listen, man, that makes, that makes a church extremely significant, doesn't it? Now, here's a problem. Most churches aren't doing very well. In fact, Tom Rainer, who is uh, the, the head of Lifeway, which you've seen Lifeway stores, that is kind of the Southern Baptist, uh, that's kind of our resource center. Tom Rainer is also a researcher, and he said in America there's about 350,000 churches. They've actually identified 250,000 in Ruston alone. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> but here's what Rainer said. Rainer said in America, 10% of churches are healthy thriving. 40% are sick. 40% are in the ICU unit, and 10 are dead just waiting on the undertaker to come pick them up. 90% of churches are not in a good spot. Why? If we're the body of God, if Jesus is is our, our head, we are the body of Christ here on this earth, why is that so? Shouldn't we matter, church? Should we matter? Yes, we should matter. But why are so many churches not mattering? I want to I tell you, there's, there's a lot of things we could say, but I want to say, obviously we're probably not doing the things we should do, but fundamentally maybe we're not who we should be. So I want to look the second thing at, at this. And what we've got to have as a church, a church must have the character of Jesus. A lot of things we should do. I could spend five hours today. I won't. On talking about what a church should do to be successful. But I want to tell you, before you should do, you need to be. Does that make sense? Your character matters more than your works. Because eventually your works are going to be a result of your character. What, what is your character? When people talk about character, character is, is the sum. It's kind of the sum of your features. It's kind of the, the traits that form you, who you are. Someone said reputation is what people think of you. Character is who you are. There's truth to that. Your, your character is the sum and the total of, of, your, of your nature. It's really who you are. There's two primary characteristics of Jesus that this church must be in the days ahead. I want to start with this. And, and again, you may say, well, how does this matter to me? How does this matter? This is huge for you. This is huge for your kids. This is huge for your grandkids. You, if you can't get the church right, you're never going to be right with Jesus. You, you, you can't love Jesus and hate his body. Guys, can you imagine being stupid enough to go on a date and tell a girl, man, I like you, but your body's terrible. If she has a concealed carry, you're dead. A lot of girls around here I'd be careful with. So what are the characteristics of Jesus that we need to see today? Number one, we must be anchored in the truth. Anchored in the truth. What is truth? Well, is truth here? Is it talking about truth versus lying? Yes, it it certainly is truth versus, versus lying, but it's reality. 
This is truth is something that's absolutely and morally right. Did you get that if you're taking notes? It's what's absolutely and morally right. And folks, the world for thousands of years has struggled and fought against moral absolutes. You, know, you want to know why? Because if you have moral absolutes, you have to look in the mirror and say, I may be doing something wrong, and we don't want to do that, do we? We don't want to do that, especially in this politically correct world we live in today, but that's been going on for years. Jesus stood before Pilate, Pontius Pilate, the governor, who ended up giving him the okay to die. And Jesus mentioned truth, and you can imagine Pilate in a smug way said, truth, what is truth? What is truth? And 2,000 years later in America, I tell you, we are on a journey to to do away with truth faster than I have ever seen it in the last few years. Several years ago, a young man named Ford Vox created a new movement, a philosophy. He called it universism, not universalism. Universalism is a religious belief that says everybody's going to end up in heaven someday. That'd be great. It's just not true. (laughs) Universism is even more peculiar. Universism, created by this young man, says that there is no religious truth. In fact, there is no final truth. There is no final authority. That is really cool if, you, uh, if you're fighting authority, right? <laughs> In fact, listen to this statement they made, him and his group. We absolutely reject absolute truth. Isn't that a little dogmatic for people who are waffling? <laughs> we absolutely reject absolute truth. I didn't think you absolutely did anything but smoke dope probably. <laughs> that was not in my notes. That just... <laughs> Sacramento, California, there's a camp called Camp Quest West. Do not let your kids go to this camp. They advertise it as a camp for agnostic and atheist kids. That's baloney. It's a camp for agnostic and atheist parents. You send your 9- and 10-year-old kid there, and they do things like regular camps do. They swim, they make crafts, and then they talk about why they don't believe there's a God. And at the end of the week, they get together. They can't sing Kumbaya because that's Christian. And they have a little warm and fuzzy time, and they talk about the new religion the 9- and 10-year-olds created and how they want to create a religion that everyone can like. Isn't that just, oh, makes me want to vomit. I mean, how disgusting that is, how crazy that is. People have a right to do that, absolutely. I'm not saying that. It's just crazy. But here's the thing that scares me even more. There's churches going this direction. There's churches actually debating whether they should, they should ordain homosexual priests and, and ministers. If that's okay, so is adultery. Churches debating whether the Bible really is the Word of God. Don't have the Bible, we're starting to get in trouble, aren't we? And Jesus can certainly not be the only way to heaven. Why, that's too narrow-minded and redneck. I cry when I hear parents say, well, it doesn't matter where my kid goes to church as long as they're going. Are you serious? It's like saying... I'm just going to go to a doctor. Whether he believes in cancer or not doesn't matter. I just want to feel good when I leave. If he won't weigh me and tell me I'm sick, I'll be fine. I am speaking about myself there a little bit. 
John chapter 1, verse 14 and 17. Listen about Jesus, who we are his body. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. Please read this with me, full of we will look at the, last, the first part of that in a second. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through our head. And John 14, 6, Jesus described himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And in 2 Timothy three sixteen, it says all Scripture is God-breathed. Folks, when someone says the Bible is not the Word of God, God doesn't breathe lies. God doesn't breathe falsehoods. God doesn't breathe things that aren't true. Is there gray areas in Christianity? Are there minor things we're going to disagree on? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I love what I heard one person say. When it gets to the fundamentals, white is always white, green is always green, two plus two always equals four, heaven's real, hell's hot, the Bible's true, and Jesus is the only way. Amen? Does matter where you go to church. Does matter where your kids go to church. How can we have the blessing of God on us unless we as a church walk in truth? I looked up anchors this week just to play around on the internet a little while. That, that anchor right there, the largest anchors in the world, but as far as I could tell, are used on offshore rigs, which would make sense. If you're going to have a floating oil rig in the ocean, you need to have it anchored well. And, and the largest ones I, I could find weighed 75 tons. That's 150,000 pounds. You got on the scale this morning and you were unhappy. You did not weigh 150,000 pounds, did you? That is huge. But I want to tell you something that's even neater. As great and big as that anchor is, if a church is who a church should be, we are anchored in Jesus Christ. We are anchored in God. We are anchored in the ruler of the universe. Isn't that cool? We have to be a place... Some of you don't like this. You're going to like my next point better. Some of you are loving this. You're not going to like my next point very much. But man, listen, there's no compromise here. We must be anchored in the truth. Amen? Secondly, we must be saturated in grace and love. We must, must, must be saturated in grace and love. Let's look at these verses again. Verse 14 of John. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the One, and only who came from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Verse 17 again. It says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What does grace mean? And grace and love are siblings. Grace is, is unearned and unearned merited favor. In other words, you can become a Christian today or you are a Christian today because God looked at you and God said, listen, you, you cannot earn it and you don't deserve it, but I love you and I'm willing to save you. Isn't that great? And the word love is a, is a Greek word, means agape. It's agape and it means an unconditional, unearned love. It's a benevolent, active love. In other words, God just loves us because he created us and he, he just loves us. Isn't that cool? You see, here's what churches do. Churches fall off this horse on one of two sides. We're all truth and we beat people to death, right? Or we're all grace and all grace is, oh, it's okay. It doesn't matter what they do. And both of them are wrong. But the, the, we've got to be balanced in both of these. 
But we're talking about grace for a minute. I read this week that 40% of Americans, 40% of Americans, and that certainly includes some in this room, have been hurt deeply by a church in their life. I believe that. Part of that is, is that we've been too strong on truth and not very full of grace. The old saying, you, you hate the sin, but you love the sinner, that's what we're talking about. It means we hold to the truth that we say right is right and wrong is wrong, but we love you anyway. And the church is a place where you need to be if you're in the middle of a mess. Did you hear me? The church is a place you need to be. There was a, a, a pastor who sponsored a child through Compassion International in Ethiopia. And he got, the, he got the, the privilege to go to Ethiopia and actually meet this child. And so they're in this small town. We would call it a village, a small town. And while they're there with their child, there, there starts to be some commotion. And their guide says, look, there's, there's fixing to be trouble. You need to get out of here. We've got to get you to a safe place. And the pastor said, what about the child? And they said, the child will be fine. We got to get you out of here. We got to get you a safe place. And the pastor asked again, What about this 10 year old girl? And they said, The child will be fine. And finally, the pastor said, We're not leaving till you tell me what you tell the child to do. Listen to what they said. We tell the child when it's in trouble and it's in danger, you scream and you run as fast as you can to the church because the church is a safe place. Can you say amen? Wow. Years ago in a church I pastored, a little church, everybody knows everybody, a person came in and it got, it got back to me that, and it was a, it was a youth, it, it wasn't an older person, it was a young person who said to one of my deacons, they said, what is that person doing here? Everybody knew this person had a bad reputation, morally. And my deacon made the greatest statement ever. He said, this is exactly where they need to be. And four months later, I baptized that person. Isn't that great? The church is the place you run to. The church is the safe place. I use the term saturation because a a lot of churches, a lot of churches... We're kind of like this with with grace. We got a little bit on the corner, (laughs) but the rest of us is pretty crusty and hard, right? I mean, the youth group, they're loving and they're graceful, but boy, you're getting, you know, 50 plus, they're pretty mean. That's a lot of churches, isn't it? But see, we need to be saturated. And when you you saturate something, it, it feels every part of it, doesn't it? And And see, what God wants from us is he wants us to be like him. Truth and grace. Saturated in grace. Just like my hands are now saturated in water. I want to tell you one more story that that I think uh, illustrates this well. Tony Campolo is a unique guy. He is a sociologist and a preacher. And he was in Hawaii years ago doing a conference. And Hawaii, at least Honolulu, is six hours 
behind us. So if it's noon here, it's 6 in the morning there. And he's from Philadelphia, so it would be 7 hours. So he speaks late one night, then he can't sleep. So he's, he gets up about 3 o'clock, and he walks down to this greasy spoon diner to get something to eat. And, and while he's in there, it's just him and the grouchy guy who owns the place and the grouchy guy's wife. About 9 or 10 prostitutes come in the restaurant. And he said, okay, here I am eating a donut, having a cup of coffee. (laughs) My wife's not with me, and there's nine prostitutes. He goes, it's a little uncomfortable. And he said they were talking, they were loud, and he said, and one of them's name was Agnes, and she said, tomorrow is my birthday. Tomorrow I turn 39. And one of the girls said, what do you want us to do, Agnes? Get you a cake and throw you a party? I mean, big deal, it's your birthday. And then he could tell that the woman was almost embarrassed she said that because she said, no, I don't want anything. I don't, I don't want anything. I don't need anything from you. I'm just making a statement. Tomorrow's my birthday. The ladies left, and Campolo asked the owner of the restaurant. He said, can we throw Agnes a birthday party tomorrow night? And he said, the old grouchy guy got real excited. He said, yeah. He said, I'll even make the cake. And Campolo said, I'll go get all the decorations. I'll come back at 2.30 because they came in that, that diner every night about 3.30. He said, I'll decorate the restaurant. We'll throw Agnes a birthday party. So Campolo gets there at 2.30. He decorates that diner. Uh, happy birthday, Agnes. Makes it real pretty. The, 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 the grouchy owner's wife apparently gets the word out. And Campolo says, every hooker in Honolulu is in that diner. <laughs> at 3.30, Agnes and one of her friends come in, and Campolo by this time is kind of moderating. They scream, happy birthday, and they sing happy birthday. He said she almost faints. She's crying. They bring her a birthday cake. He said she sat and she looked at it like you and I would look at $10,000 put before us. And they said, Agnes, cut the cake, cut the cake, let's have some cake. And she said, I've never had a birthday cake in my life. Can I please take it home? I live right down the street. She said, I'll take it home, I'll come back. I want to be here. This is so awesome. And they said, sure, go. And and Campolo said when she left, there's that awkward silence. So he did what any good preacher would do. He said, sisters, can we pray? He said he started praying. He said, I cut loose. He said, I was saying, God, I pray you'll save Agnes, Lord. I pray that for these, these ladies in this room, God, you'll change them, you'll bless them, you'll protect them, that the grouchy guy will get ungrouchy, and that, God, that your spirit will move in the people's lives. And he said, amen. He said, when he said amen, the owner of the restaurant looked at him. He goes, you didn't tell me you're a preacher. And Paul said, well, yeah, I am. He goes, what kind of church do you preach at? I don't think you're supposed to put ad at the end of the sentence, but you probably don't correct the grouchy guy in his restaurant. Campolo said it must have been the Holy Spirit because he said back to the guy, he said, I preach at the kind of church that throws parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And he said, that guy teared up. He said, no, you don't. He said, those kind of churches don't exist. He said, if that kind of church existed, I would be in it every week. Let's be that kind of church. Let's be that kind of church.
Let's pray. Christian, I'm going to challenge you in just a moment. But examine your heart. Where are you on that grace and truth pendulum? Where are you? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you're ready today to give your life to Christ, would you pray with me? And just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I want to repent of my sins. I accept that you're God's son and that you died for me. Jesus, come into my heart this morning. And today, I surrender myself to you. Let me have your attention just for a moment. We're going to stand, and when we do, I want to challenge you to respond to Christ. Maybe you just prayed and asked Christ in your heart, or maybe you're ready to do that. Listen, the grace of God is here, but you've got to accept it. When we stand, would you come today, would you come this morning and seal that deal with Jesus in your heart? Maybe you're here this morning and and you're looking for a church to join. Listen, I think I can speak for our church. We want to be a church of truth and grace. And if that's the kind of church you, you want to be a part of, we would love for you to join us. One way you can join us, when we stand, you slip out and you come and talk to one of these ministers. You can do that this morning. And Christian, this morning I want to challenge you Maybe today where you're standing or at the altar, there needs to be some repentance because, again, in one of those two areas, you're falling off the horse on the truth or the grace side too much. And you need to bring that balance into your heart and into our church. Christian, maybe you want to come and pray at the altar or pray with a minister or even come and just pray for our church and ask God to help us to live out His character. Let's stand. As God leads you, we'll be waiting on you.